Well, here we are again in our fourth installment of a study of the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes. Thank you everyone for coming along on this journey uh, together. <clears throat> I pray that uh, that um, the curiosity that you have for this book, which everyone has, will uh, will be <clears throat> something that will make faith, that you will um, begin to see why this book was uh, was written and why it was included in the in the Bible. To recap <clears throat> from our last uh, session, we um, we saw that um, the writer of Ecclesiastes revealed three of the seven pieces that make up God's riddle. That's what it, that's what Ecclesiastes is is an explanation, not a solution, but an explanation for the riddle that God created. And the riddle, <clears throat> of course, is mentioned in Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. And we have visited that a couple of times, so uh, give that a look. Um, but the three <clears throat> pieces that were revealed uh, last time are, number one, that life is broken. Life is broken. We learned that from chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, and really <clears throat> only the first part of 15, so 15a. 15a. And then number two, the second piece, is we discovered that the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying that this brokenness is not fixable. Man, mankind cannot reverse engineer the hollowness and the inhospi inhospitality and the inequity of life. We find that in the second half of verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, 15b. And then the third piece of the riddle we discovered uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1, where he says, quote, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. There the writer is saying that attempts to fix it, attempts to reverse engineer life, are designed to only result in frustration. So the three pieces of um, the riddle. We're going to see, in today's session, we're going to see the other four pieces. So seven in all, seven pieces of the riddle. And again, <clears throat> these pieces won't allow you to solve the riddle. They only explain it. They explain it, they flesh it out, they give... Um, context uh, to the riddle. Now, I recommend to you um, a book by Billy Graham. It may very well has, have, have, been, has been, have been his first book, uh, 1955, called The Peace, of God, uh, Peace with God. Peace with God. And uh, in that book, uh, which is an evangelical book. It's really directed toward unbelievers, uh, describing, uh, in a nutshell, the very same thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes is describing, and that is 
Why is life not fulfilling? Why does it seem to always come short of our expectations? And he actually begins the book, Billy Graham does, the very first paragraph in the book is a wonderful treatment, uh, more or less a modern version of what we've gone through so far in Ecclesiastes. So I, I highly recommend it. And uh, I would quote it, <clears throat> but it's kind of long. So, so look it up and uh, check it out. I would also... Um, I want to also address the nagging uh, thing that many of us have in our minds. Well, what is the point of the Old Testament making this riddle? And yet, as Christians, those of us who are believers, we have the answer. We, we have all that is needed for life and godliness, as the scripture says. We have new life. We have hope. Well, the answer is, you know, a couple things. One is, the writer of Ecclesiastes is not ignoring the gospel. We'll see hints of the gospel throughout. But the second thing is, remember that the Old Testament believers uh, didn't see the gospel as clearly as we do. Obviously, they knew it. Obviously, they did. They just didn't know his name. They just didn't know the name of Jesus Christ. But they definitely knew of a coming Messiah. And they knew that the sacrifices they were making of the animals were symbolic and pointed toward that eventual coming of Christ. Definitely they knew that. And we could spend time on that. But what I'll do, possibly, uh, <clears throat> at the end of the study, I'll, I'll refer back to that and... and and, and we'll, we'll address that in more detail. Um, but for now, let's do this. Let's look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And what I want to do is, uh, I want to look at a couple of things. And one of them is, chapter 2, verse 26. <clears throat> For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner... He has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. We saw last time that verses 24 through 26 are the writers coming to a conclusion after postulating the emptiness and, and vanity of life, uh, looking back on his own life and seeing how that proved it even more to him. And then in verse 24, he turns a corner, for the first time mentions God, and commends uh, the reader to allow God to be God and to, uh, and to work on uh, contentment, to cultivate in their own life uh, contentment. Look what he says here, though. He says, for to a person who is, what? Good in his sight. Now, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian today, you know what that means. How is someone good in God's sight? Well, it certainly isn't by what we do. It is only by appropriating that goodness that's in Christ, by believing in what he did for you and repenting of your sin and confessing it and turning toward him, asking for his life to replace yours. 
Well, again, it's not as clear as we would like to see it or we're used to seeing it in the New Testament, but the gospel is present in Ecclesiastes for sure. And look at another thing here. Look what he says in that same verse. He says, um, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Well, that's interesting because, you know, it says in Colossians that Jesus Christ is in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, even Job, going back to the Old Testament, recognized this. You look at the book of Job and look at uh, chapter 28, you'll see that Job describes a wisdom that is unearthly, otherworldly. And he, at the end of the chapter, will conclude that it comes only from God. It comes only from God. So, um, if you take these things that we've just, just looked at, and you keep your finger in Ecclesiastes and flip over to Romans 8, we see some very interesting parallels. Very, very interesting parallels. For example, over in uh, Romans 8, and let's go ahead and read that, um, even though we've read it a few times. Let's read it again. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There are many interesting parallels between this passage and what we've examined so far in Ecclesiastes. For example, subjected to futility. We've seen that in Ecclesiastes. What about in hope? The hope there is that, well, we're about to see that today, the fact that God did this with a purpose. He subjected the world to futility he made the corruption that sin brought into the world even more than it might otherwise have been just for the sake of making an apologetic out of it. And he did it in hope of men recognizing him, recognizing his hand in that, and turning in frustration and turning in bewilderment, really, and longing uh, to him. Well, let me just jump over there and, uh, and uh, tag on that in Ecclesiastes. And that is uh, over in uh, three, chapter three, and we'll 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 come on to this as we go through the path, uh, the text. But over in th- chapter three, and then verse fourteen, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God is so worked that men should fear Him. Do you see the apologetic there, and the same thing that Paul has said in Romans eight? that God did this to draw people to himself. All right? Well, <clears throat> let's, um, let's jump in now with, with, with both feet, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Now, what chapter 3 does is talk about God. It's, it's been misunderstood by a lot of folks. A lot of folks. Many people have written songs based on this paragraph, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. 
uh, Pete Seeger, the birds, uh, just, I looked them, I looked uh, up uh, a bunch of folks, and I think I counted about a dozen people that have recorded songs based on this paragraph. And the most famous was probably the, the 1965 uh, song by the uh, rock group, The Birds, <clears throat> um, that, um, you know, turn, turn, turn. And um, whether, you, <laughs> whether you are familiar with that song or not, or even old enough to even be aware of it, um, there's a lot wrong with what they did to that song. There's a lot wrong with what the song did to this paragraph. <clears throat> and the short of it is, everyone who has sang this paragraph in a song has basically misinterpreted it. Um, I don't know of any song that has not misinterpreted this paragraph. And the way they've done it is they have made this paragraph about man, about mankind. And it's not about mankind. It's not about uh, the perfect timing to do a thing or how you have periods and epochs and, 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 you know, portions in your life where things happen and other things don't happen, and, you know, that's not what it's about. It's not about us. This paragraph is about God. And it comes in a very timely fashion, because what the writer of Ecclesiastes has done is he said, life is broken, and it's unfixable, and attempts frustrate, and then he calls us to contentment in verses 24 through 26. He says, you have a choice. And verse 26 really emphasizes that choice when it compares the one who does give in and let God be God versus the one who does not give in and let God be God. And he actually describes that latter person as vain. You see that at the very end of the verse. This, too, is vanity. He's called us to contentment. And the reason he's going to start talking about God now, in the first half of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is because he's saying you need, he's already said in 24 through 26 of chapter 2, you need to let God be God. And now he's saying because God is God. That's what chapter three verses one through eight are about. God is God. He's sovereign. So let's go ahead and read it. And um, um, let's do that, one through eight. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There's, there's many interesting things about this paragraph that a quick glance do not reveal. 
and I want to point them out and, uh, and try to make sense, try to make sense of this. First, I'm sure you recognize this is a poem. Maybe that's why uh, people have gravitated uh, toward it to make it into a song. <laughs> you know, that's, that's very likely. That's very possible. Um, but it is a poem. And because it's a poem, it's a little bit difficult to get real technical with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of built-in poetic license in its writing, even more than there is in Ecclesiastes in general. But let me start with something. And that is, what the writer of Ecclesiastes has done is he's actually expanded on something he has said earlier. And that is, over in chapter 1, in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, the first point I want to make is that verse which says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 are, are a description, an expansion on what he said in verse 14. All the works, all the activity, all the going through life, all the events of life. Um, J.I. Packer called this paragraph the rhythm of human life. That's what it is. That's what it is. <clears throat> so, um, the writer is just explaining or expanding on what he has said uh, previously. Note there that word appointed. Different versions, of course, will have something different. Uh, but there is an appointed time, verse 1, for everything. The word there is actually set. Set. You know, like, like established. Um, by the way, he says the same thing. If you flip a page over to verse 11 of chapter 3, you see he says it again. He has made everything, many versions have, beautiful. My version has appropriate. He has made everything appropriate. Another word would be perfect. He's made everything perfect in its time. You getting the, you getting a hint here? This is about God. This is about God. And it's saying that God has decreed everything in our lives. He has choreographed everything in our lives. In fact, this is uh, piece number four of the riddle. Remember, piece number one, life is broken. Piece number two, brokenness is unfixable. Piece number three, attempts to fix it, result in frustration. And now we have piece number four. And piece number four is God orchestrates life. God decrees the ebb and flow of life. And really, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit because that's what this uh, poem is actually saying is the ebb and flow. Um, so the next thing I want to point out is, what is the very first thing that's, that's described? What's the very first phrase that's used to describe life? Being born and dying. Being born and dying. That's really, really significant. Because right away, the writer... Uh, anticipating what someone might say or think, he's, he's already established the fact that, no, <clears throat> this is not about you. This is not about your choices. What choice did you have to be born or to die? Those aren't, aren't in, in, your, in your prerogative. They're not in your purview. And so right away we have 
you know, the person who believes this is all about them, they have to come to a screeching halt because what influence over your birth and over your death, your birth especially, did you have? You didn't have any. This is not about you. Also, as the writer says, birth and death in the beginning here, <clears throat> and speaking for God, God is saying, I, I cause life to happen, and I cause life to go away. So God is claiming <clears throat> the complete control over human life. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Here's another thing. Um, how could you more thoroughly um, encapsulate a life, an individual's life, than to describe birth and death? You can't. You know, everything is, in, is, in, is inside those parameters. So again, it's a, it's a, um, it's a testament to the con complete control over life that God has. <clears throat> now, so in other words, everything in life belongs to God. Now, the, uh, there are couplets here. I'm sure you, you recognize that. Uh, some Bible versions actually have semicolons in between the couplets, or actually in between the individual pieces of each couplet, which is very re revealing, revealing, but unfortunately not many versions do that. For example, verse 2. A time to give birth and a time to die. Then there's a semicolon in my version. Then, same verse, but the end of the verse, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Well, isn't that interesting? Did you notice there's actually some link between the second part of the couplet and the first part? Planting and uprooting versus birthing and dying. Do you see? And he does it again. He does it in every single verse. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. They're related. That is, tearing down and building up are related to killing and healing. Do you see? So they're couplets. And I think what's happening here is we have a subject and then a sub-subject. The very first line is the subject. The second line, the second half of the couplet, is a sub-subject. And what I think this communicates is that God not only is, is involved in the major events of your life, but because these things are sub-subjects, he's actually involved in and interested in and in charge of everything that happens in your life. These second half of the couplets are actually nuances of the first half. Do you see that? Let's look at another one. Verse 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. See? It's very, very similar. And it goes on and on and on. And I think one of the more interesting ones is numbers, uh, verse 7. Verse 7. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Really now? How does, that, how does the second half of that couplet relate to the first half? Well... This is very much like Solomon. Whether Solomon wrote this or not, this is very much like Solomon. If you have read the Proverbs of Solomon very much, uh, the book that's immediately before this one, Proverbs, 
you know that he spends a lot of uh, ink on the subject of speech. In fact, there are whole chapters in Proverbs that are nothing but advice on how to talk in a godly way and not hurt others with your talk. And look what he has here. Um, or at least the writer has here. Tearing apart, coupled with speaking, and sewing together, coupled with being silent. This is very powerful, and it's very, very biblical. In fact, uh, I was reading Proverbs just the other day, and I ran across the verse that says, Like the thrusts of a sword are some people's evil speech. Isn't that true? I mean, everyone knows that that's true. There is hurt. Whatever kind of individual you are, no matter how thick your skin is, there is a certain amount of hurt in words that, that can happen. Like the thrusts of a sword. So we have this, we have this poem, and it's really, really an interesting poem. Um, notice, did you notice here that not only is, does this poem run the gamut of life, um, not only is it a expansion on chapter one verse fourteen, not only is it uh, describing that God has complete control over life. But notice there is no evaluation, no judgment, no consideration for these events. It just states the events. There's no, there's no analysis of the event. There's no judgment of the event. There's no criticism, you know, positive or negative, of, of the events. That's not the point of the writer. The point of the writer is this is God's purview. God does these things. And <clears throat> I'll, let me say it again because it can easily be missed. The reason this comes, the reason chapter 3 comes as it does in this book is because the writer of Ecclesiastes has said, yes, life is, is, is tough. Yes, um, that toughness has to be endured, it can't be repaired. Um, and making yourself always trying to overcome that toughness, trying to reverse it, trying to avoid it, is just is just futile and it's frustrating. Then he comes and he says, because God, in chapter 3, God runs life. God runs life. We don't. We're not the captain of our, <laughs> how does that go? The captain of our fate and master of our, the cap captain of our ships and master of our fates or whatever, however that goes. <clears throat> We're not. We're not in charge. God is in charge. All right. Uh, I would point out one more thing before we leave the paragraph. And that is verse 4. And verse 4 is going to be very, very um, important in, in subsequent chapters. It's a subject he'll come back to uh, a few times in uh, later chapters. Verse 4, <clears throat> A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us 
is that there are people who decide not to accept what God has done, to push back against God, to be indignant, that is angry, that is accusatory toward God for doing what he's done with life. <clears throat> and in that anger, and in that indignation, and vexation, words that uh, the writer will use, the person often, this person who is, who is rebelling, often will then live life in pretense. Pretense. As if the brokenness doesn't exist. Let me show you that <clears throat> over in chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, and we'll look at uh, verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. You see what he's saying? He's saying the fool, and he'll, he'll flesh that out in that chapter and in other places. The fool says, you know, I'm just going to pretend that, the life, that life isn't broken. I'm just going to party and laugh and, you know, get drunk and, you know, take drugs and, you know, do all those things to try to just, you know, ignore, ignore the fact that life is trying to t teach me a lesson. Life is trying to tell me something. The, the human condition is trying to impress upon my heart that there is a God, and I'm trying to ignore it. Do you see? I'm trying to fulfill myself with all these things and just laugh the day away and laugh my life away. And, and the writer of Ecclesiastes is addressing that. Already in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, A time to weep and a time to laugh. And what's this paragraph about? Sovereignty. God's choices. God's purview. So the writer is saying, we laugh and we weep. We have these times of laughing and we have these times of weeping when God says that we do. They're not really our choices. They're God's choices. And there are godly ways to do each of them. Godly times and ways to laugh and godly times and ways to, to weep. And not to do it in unfaithfulness the way the person in chapter 7 is doing it. Does that make sense? Do you see what he's saying? It's important. It's really important. I'll remind you, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but I'll remind you that in Job, when Job has had all these bad things happen to him, and his wife turns to him and says, this is more than you deserve. You should give up on God. And Job turns to her and says, you've said a very foolish thing. Don't you know that God brings us bad along with the good? Bad along with the good. In fact, that's much of what the book of Job is about. All 42 chapters is basically, well, most of it, is, is basically Job repeating the refrain that God doesn't only give us good things. He also gives us things which we perceive as bad. But he does it for his own reasons, and he does it in love, and he does it in faithfulness. That's a whole different subject, but <clears throat> maybe sometime we'll, we'll go through that together. Um, so, the writer has already, 
addressed something he'll come back to later, and that is weeping and laughing and mourning and dancing. He is saying, you know, these, these, these things aren't in our... We don't have the ability to arrange our lives so that these things happen when we would like. We don't. It's not in our purview. It's in God's purview. It's God's choices. God's choices. <clears throat> All right, let's turn the page. And we're going to uh, look at uh, verse 9 now. And we'll, uh, we'll read 9 through 15. 9 through 15. And <clears throat> a couple things are going to happen here in 9 through 15. And really, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, actually conclude the writers going from life is broken, God gives us a choice, how to deal with that, how to accept it, and you must accept it <clears throat> because God is in control. Now he's going to say, um, something else. In fact, he's going to give us the last three pieces of the puzzle. The last three pieces of the riddle. We've already seen four, and I'll remind you. Number one, life is broken. Number two, this brokenness is unfixable. Number three, attempts to break it uh, lead in frustration. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, attempts to reverse it being broken uh, re result in frustration. And number four, we just saw that God orchestrates. So let's read on. Let's go 9 through 15. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. <clears throat> wow. So we actually have three more pieces, the final three pieces, making seven in all, of the riddle of life. The riddle that we see uh, Paul commenting on in Romans 8.20, and that Ecclesiastes is largely, well, for the most part, that's what the book is about, is this riddle. This riddle that God has made life inhospitable uh, and done it on, done it on purpose, as a kind of evangelism to the world at large. So let's go ahead and look. Verse 9, what prophet? What prophet? What he's saying is, it links to the last thing he said. And the last thing he said uh, was about the riddle, of course, before the sovereignty of God. But the last thing he said was about the riddle was, uh, it can't be undone. It can't be unraveled. And that's what he's saying here. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? In other words, you can't fix this thing. You can't, you can't do anything about it. Look at verse 10. Very interesting things. Three things in verse 10 jump out at us. Short verse, but powerful. I have seen the task which God has 
given. The sons of men with which to occupy themselves. So task, given, and occupy. You see what's going on here? You see what's going on? He's saying God made man want to unravel the riddle. This is this is uh, this is uh, riddle piece number five, number five, and that is that we are compelled, we are compelled to uh, unsearch this riddle to to figure it out, and and yet we can't, we can't do it. Let's jump back. Keep your finger here. Jump back to chapter one again. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you something. Chapter one. Verse 13, 113. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous, that, that, the word grievous is evil. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Afflicted with. What's going on there? What the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying in 9, 10, and 11, well, 9 and 10 in particular, 9 and 10, is that even though life is broken, brokenness is unfixable, attempts to fix it result in frustration, and God is orchestrated, even though uh, all those are true, God has still compelled us God has compelled man to want to fix it. To want to fix it. Do you understand that? Even though we can't, God has put in us to want to. That's what it means by afflicted in, ver in chapter 1. Afflicted. And over here, grievous task which has been given to occupy us. We're compelled. God has made it so that we're compelled to unravel this thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's keep reading. Verse 11. He's made everything appropriate in its time. He's also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There's another piece. This would be piece number six of the riddle. And that is that God has blocked our finding out. God has made it impossible for us to unravel. Of course, we, we saw some of that way back in piece two, where, where the brokenness of life is unfixable. But here he's emphasizing it in a different way, and that is God has deliberately, despite the fact that he made us want to, He's made it impossible for us to do. What irony. What a paradox. That's verse 11. Note in verse 11, he's made everything appropriate or beautiful or perfect. In other words, God did not make a mistake. He did this on purpose. And look at the phrase, not find out. All right? In the middle of, chap middle of verse 11, man will not find out the work which God has done. 
Do you see? Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, for it is the gift of God. What's he talking about? 12 and 13 are actually a repeat of 2.24, chapter 2, verse 24. That is a call to contentment. A call to contentment. I think I mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. In a way, you could call the book of Ecclesiastes a, an apologetic on contentment, on letting God have say over your lot in life. And it's no coincidence that Chapter 2, verse 24, and now chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, are also saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. We must give in to what God has done. Let me give you the references for how many times this is, this is spoken. We saw it in 2.24, chapter 2, verse 24. We just now saw it in 3, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We'll see it again at the very end of chapter 3, verse 22. We'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 18, and again in 6.12, and again in 8.15, and again in 9.7, and again in 11, 7 through 10. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. Eight times altogether in just 12 chapters. The writer of Ecclesiastes will call us to contentment. Call us to giving in and letting God be God. Giving him the right to do as he will. As he wills and, and as he has done. Contentment. 14, I know that everything God does, verse 14 in chapter 3, everything that God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That is piece number seven of life's riddle. And that is, that God has done this, all these things we've said, life is broken, brokenness is unfixable, attempts to fix it result in frustration, God orchestrates life, God has made man want to un un undecipher and, uh, and decode life, yet he has blocked it. And now the last thing is, He's done all this as an evangelistic tool, as an apologetic to draw men to him. This is a gospel. It doesn't name Jesus Christ, but this is God reaching out to man. Yes, it is. And we see that God took the fall that we read about in Genesis um, 3. God took the fall and he turned it into something for his use. That's what Romans 8.20 tells us. God did this on purpose. And he did it to draw men to himself. Well, <clears throat> that's going to be the end of our session. Um, next time, we'll begin at verse 16 of chapter 3. And we'll go on through verse, six, uh, verse 16 of chapter 4, which is really the whole chapter 4. Um, and here we'll have basically 
two uh, pushbacks. The writer of Ecclesiastes is going to anticipate and address the two most common arguments. Well, I don't know if they're the most common, but the two arguments that uh, the writer is supposing that the reader is going to have in his mind. He's going to address them, much like Paul does in his writings. You know that. Um, for example, in Corinthians, when Paul is discussing the resurrection, I believe that's chapter 15, he, uh, he says, some of you will say, well, what kind of body can we possibly have in the resurrection? In other words, he's, he's, he's like, it's, it's, it's a teaching tool. He's saying, well, some would say, and he then addresses that argument. Well, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to do in 3.16 through 4.16. He's going, to, he's going to propose two big arguments to all that he has said so far. And mainly, mainly, God's doing this on purpose, and God's doing it in faith, and God's doing it in love. He's going to address, he's going to address um, arguments and objections that people would have to that. So stay tuned and uh, check it out and um, have a faithful week and believe God. Believe God.